0: I mean I was it was blissful ecstasy from then on um, this is just Denzel Washington pure unfiltered being who he was born to be in certain movies but never really got a chance to be until now I'm as mad
1: as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore so you lie to yourself to be happy there's nothing wrong with that we all do it we all go a little mad sometimes come on one of you nuts has got any guts what's a smile face you're only as healthy as
0: you feel listen to me listen to you but
1: what right because i have a right to be and and i have a voice ladies and gentlemen welcome to pop culture case study yeah let's do it i'm pumped all right hi everybody it's uh, another episode of pop culture case study where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle a part of the following films network so today we're taking a look at the equalizer and self-efficacy and to do that i have a guest uh, david shreve thanks thanks for joining us today Thanks for
0: having me on this particular movie, nonetheless.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, you uh, kind of run a website called, uh, called, or is it We Talk Movies or Audiences Everywhere is like the con- conglomerate of it?
0: Um, audiences Everywhere is the website. That's the URL, audienceseverywhere.net. Uh, we Talk Movies is our Twitter handle, which is now a little bit dishonest because we've really opened up to television too. <laughs> um, but you don't, go, you don't go back on your brand.
1: Right. Yeah, that's right. So why don't you tell people a little bit about your brand and where they can find you? So, um, audience everywhere
0: started about two years ago as just a, an experiment in movie discourse. Um, I actually started with a handful of writers only a couple of which are still around. Um, but in the process of losing those, we picked up dozens of others and we now cover true to our brand, I think five continents. Um, we have writers <laughs> from five continents. Um, pretty much all the major metropo- uh, metropolitan areas in America, some backwoods people. We got some Canadians. Um, we try to handle – we try – we take pride in the fact that we have a diversified collection of voices, both men, women, um, all sexes and genders, are in- inclusive of all sexes and genders and uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, and we always strive to have a celebratory conversation about movies. Um, that is inclusive and informative and contemplative.
1: Nice. And actually, if you want to see some of David's writing, he wrote some particularly good pieces, I think one on Seven and one on The Descent. So if you look those up on the site, there's some really good work by him there. Thank you. Yeah, of course. All right. So before I jump into the psychological side, why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations? So...
0: Uh I also want to thank you for pronouncing self efficacy before I had to, because I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't very confident in my pronunciation, so I'm glad you let me know how to do yeah, that.
1: Yeah, no worries, I got you.
0: <laughs> so I've selected as uh movie suggestions both to as an understanding towards self-efficacy. Um I selected the I wanna say twenty two thousand nine. Well, nonetheless. I selected the movie Hot Rod. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think it's a movie that exemplifies the Um, belief in oneself to achieve certain goals, um, Spirit of the Bottlenose Dolphin and whatnot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Good call.
0: And on the other end of the spectrum, to sort of highlight the same theme, uh, I think the more recent, A Most Violent Year is another good example of a movie that uh, puts the uh, philosophy of self-efficacy into a business practice.
1: Yeah, and you're uh, you're preaching to the choir there. I think that was my favorite movie of that year. So mine too. Yeah, most violent year is fantastic. If if listeners out there, if you haven't listened to that yet or if you haven't watched that movie yet, check it out. It's two, actually three, really great performances in that film. Make make the whole thing worth it. Yeah. All right. uh,
0: Actually, um, that movie missed my when I did my countdown that year. I saw that movie. I did my countdown on December 31st, saw the movie on January 5th. So I think it
1: I think it released on like the 29th or the 30th. Like they really just got it in under the wire for that year.
0: But it ended up being my favorite movie from that year.
1: Nice. All right. uh, So we're going to take a little break. I will talk about self-efficacy and then we'll bring David back to talk about The Equalizer. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. It's time to talk about self-efficacy, uh, which you all know how to pronounce now, along with David Shreve. So self-efficacy is the extent or strength of one's belief in their own ability to complete tasks and reach goals. So basically, it's how much you believe in yourself or not psychologists have studied self-efficacy from many different perspectives and they talk about the development of it the dynamics of it and how it operates in different settings and the interactions between self-efficacy and your own self-concept and how we attribute things whether that contributes to or detracts from self-efficacy so this can just be seen as the ability to persist and a person's ability to succeed at a task as an example, self-efficacy can directly relate to how long someone will stick to a diet or a workout regimen. And high and low self-efficacy will determine whether or not you even choose to take on a task that you think will be difficult for you. So I, I'm sure as you can imagine, self-efficacy, self-efficacy kind of affects everything because everything we do, we have, to, we have a level of belief or non-belief in whether we can do it. So it not only affects kind of the power we have to face challenges – but also just the choices we're going to make in general. Now, there's several different theories about self-efficacy. The first one is social cognitive theory, and this is from psychologist Albert Bandura from Stanford. And he defines self-efficacy as one's belief in one's ability to succeed in, in specific situations or accomplish a task. So your sense of self-efficacy plays a major role in how you approach things. This theory lies at the center of his larger social cognitive theory, which will emphasize the role of observational learning, kind of learning by watching others, especially parents. And the main concept in this theory is that an individual's actions and reactions, which includes these social behaviors, in almost every situations are influenced by the actions that they've observed in others. Now, because self-efficacy is developed from these external experiences and is influential in determining the outcome of basically everything, it becomes this really important aspect in his theory. It represents the personal perception of these external factors. So according to his theory, people with high self-efficacy are much more likely to view these difficult tasks as something that, that I can do, that I can master, rather than something that I should avoid because it's just too difficult for me. then there's social learning theory. This theory describes the acquisition of skills that are developed exclusively within a social group. Social learning depends on how individuals around us either succeed or fail with these dynamic interactions within the group. And it promotes the development of these individual emotional skills as well as an accurate perception of self and acceptance of other people. According to this theory, people will learn from one another through this observation and then doing it themselves and then modeling it for other people within the group. Self-efficacy will reflect this individual's understanding of the skills that they can offer to the group. The third is self-concept theory, and this seeks to explain how people perceive and interpret our own existence from clues from external sources, because that's really all we have. So these impressions get organized and they're active throughout your entire life. And these successes and failures are really closely related to the ways in which people have learned to view themselves and the relationships with other people. This theory describes self concept as something learned, not present at birth and organized and dynamic. So it's ne- your self-concept is never static. It's never not changing because you're always interacting with the world, and that affects your self-concept, and it kind of keeps going back and forth like that. The final theory is attribution theory. This focuses on how we uh, attribute events and how those beliefs interact with our self-perception. So it defines three elements of cause. Uh, first is locus, and that's the location of the perceived cause. If it's internal, then your self-esteem and self-efficacy will be enhanced by success and diminished by failure, of course. And then uh, the second is stability. This describes whether the cause is static or dynamic over time. And this is closely related to the the idea of expectations. So when people attribute their failures to things that are stable, like the task is difficult, then if they do it again, they'll expect to fail. But if they attribute it to something that's dynamic, like, oh, I wasn't feeling well that day, or um I was in a different I was in a different place than I'm usually going to be doing that task. then you might think, Oh, okay, I can succeed even if I failed before and the third is controllability, so that describes whether a person feels in control of the situation so if you fail at a task and you feel like you're out of control of the situation, you're likely to fail when you do it again, but if you feel like you were in control and you can adjust, then you're much more likely to succeed. So, okay, it exists, but why does it matter? How does it affect us? So people will generally avoid tasks when their self-efficacy is low and do tasks when the self-efficacy is high. Now, if your self-efficacy is significantly beyond your actual ability, like you have this overestimation of completing tasks, that can be just as dangerous as not doing the task because you have low self-efficacy the stronger the kind of expectations of mastery, the more active your efforts will be, the more the more, uh, the more, you'll try. Now, those with low self-efficacy sometimes will experience incentive to learn more about an unfamiliar subject where someone with high self-efficacy may not prepare as well for the task because they are overconfident. So that's how it affects motivation. Then you have kind of thought patterns and responses. So if you have low self-efficacy, you might actually believe tasks are harder than they are, so this will result in poor task planning and higher stress. People will become erratic and unpredictable when engaging in a task that they have low self-efficacy because they don't have that plan. Now, people with high self-efficacy tend will tend to take this wider view of the task to determine the best plan, so they're not overwhelmed by the task, so they can kind of pick it apart. Uh, obstacles will often stimulate people with higher self-efficacy to To try harder where someone with low self-efficacy will just get discouraged and give up because like it's hard enough task already and now you've thrown an obstacle in my way. I'm not even going to try. And finally, a person with high self-efficacy will attribute failure to external factors where the person with low self-efficacy will blame low ability. And that makes perfect sense, right? If you think you can't do something and then you end up being right, you're going to attribute that to yourself and not the situation. Now, it also affects health behaviors. So smoking, physical exercise, uh, dieting, safe sex, dental hygiene, using seatbelts, all these things are dependent on levels of self-efficacy. If you believe you could do something about this, if you believe you can quit smoking, you're much more likely to be able to do it. But if you go into – If you go into stop smoking and you don't believe it's going to work, it's probably not going to. You know, we talk, you know, people out there talk a lot about the power of positive thinking, and that's not really a thing. That's not like, well, if I just think positively, everything will work out great. But you're much more likely to try harder and to plan better if you do think positively. And one interesting thing that Bandura found is that you get different worldviews with different levels of self-efficacy. If it's high, people generally believe that they're in control of their own lives. You get that internal locus of control, which uh, David, David Shreve and I will also talk about later as far as the movie goes. So they think their own actions and, deci- and decisions shape their lives. So if you have low self-efficacy, you're much more likely to believe in the idea of destiny, like it's out of my control. I'm just, I'm just going to go with it. Now, there's four factors that Bandura identified that affect self-efficacy. Uh, First is experience. So experience of mastery is the most important factor determining a person's self-efficacy. So even if you have low self-efficacy to start, if you master tasks over and over and over again, that self-efficacy for the next time will rise. Second is modeling. Uh, So modeling is basically experienced as, well, if they can do it, then I can do it too. If we see someone succeeding – our own levels of self-efficacy will increase and when we see people failing the opposite will happen now this isn't as simple as watching anyone do it like if i if i watch sports and if i watch a professional athlete do something my self-efficacy for, towards doing that thing is not necessarily going to be raised we the this process works the best when we see someone similar to us in background and size and in, in shape in in gender all these things if they're similar to us then uh, and and they can do it then our self-efficacy will be raised. Third is social persuasion. So this is direct encouragement or discouragement from another person. I, I think it's pretty easy to understand if you're encouraged your efficacy will go up, if you're discouraged it'll go down. And the fourth is physiological factors. So in really stressful situations, um, lots of signs of distress show up, like aches and pains, fatigue, fear, nausea, all these things. Perceptions of these in in yourself can alter self-efficacy. So if you get you know so-called butterflies in the stomach or an upset stomach before public speaking, uh, if you have low self-efficacy, you're like, well, it's because I'm nervous and I can't do it, and your self-efficacy will go down even further. But if your self-efficacy is high, you could lead – you could interpret these signs as totally normal and unrelated to your ability and still be able to do it. All right. So before we get back, I wanted to talk about one article this week and it's about self-efficacy as a predictor of weight change and behavior change around food. So basically the objective is to, is to determine whether self-efficacy by itself can predict weight loss within a behavioral intervention and then explore factors that kind of influence the path between self-efficacy and weight change. So they use this particular trial called the premier trial and what it did was that it recruited a bunch of adult participants with either pre-hypertension or stage one hypertension and who weren't currently on medication. And then they got assigned to one of three groups, one where they just gave you advice. Um, basically, it was a single session of 30 minutes about information about weight loss. And then the second was an intervention group based on an established traditional lifestyle recommendation or an intervention group based on that same recommendation, plus adherence to the dietary approaches to stop hypertension, dietary pattern. So that last one, that's the behavioral intervention. And they gave them a bunch of measures. One was their BMI. Uh, Second was a measure of self-efficacy. And then they looked at behaviorally, they looked at their dietary behaviors and their physical activity. So they did find that those who had the greatest increase in self-efficacy over the course of this intervention did have the greatest weight loss. So that's a good thing. But what they found was that the self-efficacy scores of the sample decreased significantly over time. So, But there was weight loss at both 6 and 18 months. So this indicates that although self-efficacy does predict weight loss, weight loss can be achi- can be achieved in the absence of an increase of self-efficacy. So this supports the hypothesis that basically the path from self-efficacy to weight loss is not direct, but we have to kind of explore what other factors mediate the path from increased self-efficacy to weight loss. So basically what this is saying is that weight loss and weight maintenance are really complex health issues, and there's a lot of components, not just self-efficacy. So basically what this research is telling us is this: yes, this helps, this idea of of having self-efficacy and belief in yourself and belief you can achieve something will help you towards your goals but there's a lot of other things that go into it like we said it's not just the power of positive thinking a lot of times you have to have you know things go right in your life you have to have behavioral change um you and and you have to have that self-efficacy and when they all come together at the same time that's when a great deal of change uh, can occur uh, and we see of course a great deal of change for many of our characters in the movie But we have to remember this is a movie and it's in kind of a an intense period of time and about a protagonist who is kind of never wrong and always focused so and he could not have more self-efficacy if it's zero to 100 he's at 100 all right uh so that's it for the psychology section when we come back i'll bring back david shreve to talk about the equalizer All right. So we're back to talk about the movie. Now it's time to talk about The Equalizer. So when I was kind of putting together my schedule, I saw that uh, Magnificent Seven uh was going to come out later this year. And I thought, OK, I could do I could do the old uh, Magnificent Seven. I could do Kurosawa. And then I looked like, oh, Ant- Antoine Fuqua and Denzel Washington. And I started looking up. What they had done together and this movie came up and the only thing I know about this movie going in was David Shreve loves it. That's really – that's my entire <laughs> – it's, it's my entire base of knowledge is he will not stop talking about it on Twitter and keeps telling me to watch it and I keep going like, yeah, yeah, I'll watch it eventually. Uh, so now this finally gave me the opportunity. So what was your history with The Equalizer?
0: Well, my present with Equalizers, I love it so much that I barely let you finish that introduction.
1: <laughs> I can like, hear you like
0: starting. I, mm. <laughs> I, there are, I believe at this point there are folks that believe that I'm turning that into an interpersonal meme. Um, <laughs> that I don't actually love the Equalizer as much as I say that I do. And to note, it did come out the same year as the most violent year. Um, but I loved it. Um, so my history is that I, I went to review it. I was assigned by myself to review this film. <laughs> I didn't have outstanding expectations. I'm not a huge Antoine Fuqua guy. Um, I am a big Denzel Washington fan, and I will watch him in, in near anything and expect at least goodness from him. Yeah. Uh, and I think my history with this movie started at the beginning of this movie, and for 20 minutes or so, I couldn't tell what movie I was watching. And then when it finally clicked, and we'll probably get to that in a moment, there's a particular scene where you realize who he is, what he is, and what the film is. Right. I mean I was it was blissful ecstasy from then on. Um this is just Denzel Washington pure unfiltered being who he was born to be in certain movies but never really got a chance to be until now. Hmm. Even I don't the, um even in Man of Fire which I think is the closest point of relation I don't know that it was this that it was this um concentrated of a Denzel Washington role <laughs> as this one
1: was. All right. Uh so for me like I you know you walked into it with no expectations and i think maybe my expectations were maybe just the tiniest bit too high like i really enjoyed it i liked my time mm-hmm. with the movie but and it's something i'll probably watch again at at another point which is one of the highest compliments i think you can give a movie if i'm going to give you another 2 hours of my life right. when there's so many movies i haven't seen and and need to see uh but i think there are definitely some weak points and we'll of course get into that later but i did really enjoy it and i thought i thought denzel was was pretty fantastic, and this definitely—and we'll get to this with the writing. This was not the movie I expected that I was going to see, so right. I'll just put it out there. But let's get into Antoine Fuqua's direction. What did you think of his direction for The Equalizer?
0: So historically, I'm I'm back and forth on him. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I play. I wasn't a huge fan of South Paul. I was indifferent towards Training Day. Southpaw's not great. No, not at all. And <laughs> and to be released the same year as Creed, you're not doing Ooh, yourself any yeah. That's any rough. Service. So. So I don't think this is, I don't want to say that this is a masterfully directed movie. Okay. I think that this uh, story template in which, we're, in which the story is not concerned with the complexities of its main character, um, his goodness is assumed in just about every scene, as is his victory. He's going to win. He's going to be right. He's going to be righteous. There's really no need to dissect it any further than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that brings out what strengths Fukua has as a director which is kind of a backhanded compliment. He made it easy on himself and so he looked yeah, good.
1: Well, yeah.
0: Um I think um, but I think there's yeah.
1: a couple like framing devices that he uses that are really interesting. Like I think you're running into problems with with this cast when you have like your main male lead in his what in his 50s at at, at the time maybe yeah, probably. I'd say in the movie it's 50s, but I think he's over 60 in
0: right. life. Yeah. life. Right, yeah.
1: And then you have Chloe Grace Moretz, right? So you have to make it clear what what you're doing there. And I love how he, he always keeps Denzel and any attractive woman in the film, or stereotypically attractive women, I guess, yeah. separate. Yep. Like there's even a scene in the hospital where he goes to visit her and her friend is there. And they have this shot with him sitting against the wall and her standing against the other right. wall. And it, and it's such a smart choice because it would be really easy to want to kind of press your stars together in the frame. And I like that right. he maintained that distance and that works for Denzel's character in the film as well. Yeah,
0: I don't know that they ever let somebody be equal with him in a frame. Um, I was thinking about this when I was watching and you're right to note that it's true of both um, – well, all three of the attractive women in the movie – that they never really stand in any sort of framed um mutual space. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also true of him and just about any opponent, any violent opponent. They never really allow. In fact, one of my favorite scenes, um, probably my
1: favorite scene,
0: is when I don't remember the name of the of the the Russian headhunter, the the main guy, the the guy with the snarl.
1: That would be Teddy.
0: Are you Teddy, talking? Yes. Yeah. Teddy, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. When Teddy, who is the main adversary in the movie, first meets uh, the Equalizer, which is what I call him because I think of this as a superhero movie. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when he first meets the Equalizer, which is way earlier than, in the movie than this kind of movie would have you expect it to be. They meet in a stairwell. And because, um, because Robert, who is the – Robert the Equalizer, we'll refer to them interchangeably, <laughs> because he's always one step ahead of everyone – he meets him at the top of the stairs and because he meets him at the top of the stairs and that physical um and that physical explanation of the power struggle Teddy can never get above Denzel he's always one step down and that's a great scene in terms of like framing and dialogue because the dialogue is just a straight up uh, establishment of stakes and then a pa- and then a, a minute power struggle happening right in the middle of the movie full of tension and a, and assumed violence you feel like that's a violent mo- moment even though they don't even let each other know who they are yeah and and even as so as that power struggle manifests teddy can't get a step above both figuratively figuratively and literally he can't get a step above robert um robert's ahead of him in every question this is a this is a uh, teddy is a guy who also kills people for a living but does it without consciousness yeah and and he knows what he's doing he's an investigator he finds things out and he's found these things out but Robert stays ahead of him every step when he when he asks a fake question, Robert gives a fake answer, but then follows it up with his own with his own real question. So there's no there's no moment in that exchange, which I absolutely love. Like he hands he hands Robert the picture of a dead person who Robert knows and says, do you know this person? And Robert Meade goes, yeah, but I don't remember. And then hits him with another question without even blinking, without flinching at the fact that someone he just met died. Right. And then when the exchange is over. Teddy goes to walk down the stairs again, walking down the stairs being indicative of him losing the power struggle. And Robert goes and Robert asks one more question. He's like, I'm not done with you yet. <laughs> right. Robert's the one who's being hunted. And he's like, how'd you find me? And he stops him when he's down the stairs. He's like, I'm not done with you yet. And I, and that's, that's the like a small capsule that captures everything I like about this movie. As generic as that might be, I think it doesn't get tired for me to watch that.
1: Yeah. I also like that. They, you know, it's a little on the nose, but they definitely show kind of this drastic difference between how two very brutal characters interact in the world. Like, you have that initial scene, which we'll talk a lot more about, where the Equalizer just takes out the entire room, yeah. right? But does it with the least amount of effort and really the least amount of of malice that you right. could. It's it's literally just, I'm, I'm trying to get from point A to point B, and you're in the way. So let me right. just finish this. Whereas Teddy... When he goes to send a message, they have a shot of him just like pummeling this guy into into bloody dust. You know, it goes on and on and on. You see him screaming and growling during it. And I like that those two scenes are so close together. And so you – it would be really easy to have this movie and you, it would be hard to root for the equalizer because he does do some things that are pretty brutal. But when you have that dichotomy of this other guy like, oh, no, that's – that guy's a sociopath. Like that guy's horrible. Right. So we got to be in in the Equalizer's corner, and I love that they put those so close together. Yeah, there's a there's a
0: level of sadism that there that Fuqua, I think really pushes, almost like you said on the nose. It's almost a little too hard that he pushes it because he does the beat down where he's essentially vomiting noise upon right. upon the Irish uh, mafia leader, and then when he uh, dispatches another witness, a female witness, it's just. That the camera takes to the outside for fight, some sort of cognitive dissonance, but it's not there. You still see her legs shake, and right. you know the position they were in when the camera left, and you know that he's—that's just him. He's a—he's a sadistic killing machine, and like you said, with Robert, it's always driven by righteousness and almost an academic sense of right. of getting the job done. Yeah, like uh, what you mentioned—the the upstairs scene. He's—he's he's keeping time as he does that. That's how academic it is to him. Yeah, he, it's a—it's a calculation.
1: I think that's the other thing that Fuqua does really well is you, and some of that is Washington as well. But you definitely get this sense of him being meticulous in every Mm -hmm. sequence. It's not just in the scenes where he's going to kill somebody. It's you know how he folds his napkin and how he wakes up in the morning. That you get that right away. Right. Um, Yeah,
0: they 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 kind of establish that his his genesis story is controlling his OCD almost to make himself capable of the things he needs to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the only – there's only like one shot to me that really stands out that kind of made me roll up, roll my eyes. There's a scene uh, with Teddy where he's kind of like leaning back in a chair after having a phone conversation with his boss mm. and the, the tattoo shot. It just like seemed like way over the top to me and kind of ridiculous and I think some of it is because of seeing movies like, uh, like Cronenberg's Eastern Promises. Eastern Promises, right? yeah. Right? So you already have – like at least in my mind, I have this kind of backstory of the Russian mafia and what all these tattoos mean, and this just seemed like a little much for me. Like it, the shot went on just a little bit too long, and it just felt like
0: – It was a weird angle
1: too. Yeah, like it, was, it was very – It was almost um,
0: disfiguring the way yeah. that
1: they framed his body. yeah. It's one of the few shots in the movie that I – did, and I watched it twice. And both times I watched it, I was like, yep, that still bugs me. Like that – there's something about it that just – it doesn't seem to fit into this movie that in a weird way – and we'll get into this in the script. This movie for an action movie or as you call it, a superhero movie is strangely restrained. There's a lot that they actually don't show that they could. But – so let's jump into the acting. So let's, of course, talk about Denzel. I think this is – This is actually an underrated, very, very good performance. And I was thinking about Denzel's career as I watched this the second time and how fucking weird it is. Like, you know, kind of starts out, you know... Gets his start like anybody does, and then people realize how much talent he has, and he goes on kind of the Oscar bender for his career, and like every you know you got like you know uh Malcolm X and you know a number of other movies that are just uh, Philadelphia, for instance. Cool. You know uh, the very... win
0: for Glory was that his first one?
1: Yeah, Glory was a uh, best supporting actor. Yeah, so you have like all these kind of these projects that are kind of made to get critical attention. And then later in his career, you look at things like tr- ever since Training Day, it's been this very different trajectory, and not mm. in a bad way. He's still giving good performances, but in movies you wouldn't expect them out of. And I think this can be included in that list.
0: I agree. Um, I've also read—I don't know how true this is or how accurate I'm remembering—but I think I've read that he doesn't watch many movies, and he's almost the opposite of a method actor. He's someone right. who exists between, you know, the chalkboard and the cut.
1: I like and, that better. Yeah, <laughs> it's a job, and, man. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Don't don't give me the headlines. Yeah. And and you're right. I think that he did take a weird trajectory around around training day, which I think was 2001.
1: Yeah, I think I might, that's right. I might
0: be off. And what I found interesting to note is that with all that with all the things that were developing in the 2000s and with him struggling to find a role, um, assuming that the Equalizer sequel goes forward, which is it's supposed to this will be his first sequel. This will be Denzel Washington's first sequel. Oh, yeah, that's right. And if you think back at his career and who he was and who he's been and who he can be on screen, that's kind of a wasted opportunity because 35-year-old Denzel Washington would have made a great Batman. Like, oh, yeah. He could have done anything with his, with his control over his intensity. I'm a huge Denzel Washington. He's one of my favorite people. I'll watch. Like I said, I'll watch him in anything because I know that he's at least going to get that right
1: yeah I mean, even if the movie's not good he's right. going to give you a good performance right i think to me the thing that's most impressive in this particular role we talked about that idea that it's hard to make a killer likable um but he manages to do that in these small little moments uh especially with with uh chloe grace moretz's character and it's yeah. nothing over the top it's nof- nothing like oh i really care about you let's sit and talk let's really have this moment it's all very again very restrained and then his his relationship with Ralphie, with the guy who wants to become a security uh, yeah, guard, great. is so heartwarming. And when I said, "Like I, this is not the movie I expected," I think I expected it to be the more about the relationship between him and Chloe Grace Moretz. And I felt like actually the more moving relationship in this movie is between him, him and Ralphie. That yeah. really, really works.
0: Yeah, because that that actually gets its own face to face climax. They they get he get Ralphie gets to no, know uh, that Robert the Equalizer. Um, not who he is, but gets an indication of who he is right. and and a moment to thank him in return for what he did.
1: And he gets um, to use those lessons in action yeah. instead of – you know, Caligarius Grace character ends up just recovering in a hospital and then yeah. kind of coming to after all this stuff is over.
0: And granted, they never – he never – they never rub it directly into the screen. It's always small things with all – uh, when they're in the softball tournament, and Denzel Washington catches the fly ball, and they all run because that's the third out, and they run towards the dugout, and they see Ralphie in his security u- uniform, uh, the equalizer, Robert, who's trained him and and made him lose and helped him lose the weight and become the small pat with the glove. That's it. Everybody else celebrates. Yep. Robert just pats him with the glove and walks away, and it, and he does that. The there's no grand gesture from him that isn't violence in this, right. which you would think would be counterintuitive to liking him. But, but I think if
1: you, I honestly think that if you do have those grand gestures, it's yeah. all going to, it's going to come off as an act. It's going to come off as right. false. Because the, the only, it's a movie. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Like I think you actually get more emotion from Denzel in, in this film in the scenes where he's pretending to be someone he's not. Right. You know, like, like that, that scene in the, in the stairwell that you were talking about. He's much more emotionally expressive in those moments than he is with any of the people that he actually cares about.
0: He smiles, uh, he smiles, like I think his biggest smile is in that moment where he, where he realizes the guy's trying to catch him and he stays ahead of him. Right. And he says, there's five Russian restaurants between here and there. Why would you go to that one? And he just laughs. He just yep. laughs
1: at him. Yep.
0: And he laughs at the scariest guy in the movie. And it is a genuine emotion for him. It's him being relieved that he gets to do what he was born presumably to do.
1: So speaking of that scariest character in the movie, uh, Martin Sokas, uh, who plays Teddy, what did you think of that performance?
0: I think that performance, again, it's almost the same thing as Fuqua. It didn't mess itself up, Mm, which is the best credit I could give it. He was all (laughs) snarl. It it was just just a a curled lip and a mean mug. Like, that was pretty much the whole thing to it. And I don't know if it was reservation on the part of the actor, the director, the editors, but they – except for that, like you said, the one scene where they observe his body and the strange angle and the tattoos, I don't think he ever oversold his evil presence. And I, to that, I think he was a very engaging
1: villain. Hmm. See, I think I had a, a different experience of that performance. Like, I, I felt like it was oversold. And I think – I don't think that's necessarily his fault. I think it's more of the writing. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's every stereotypical kind of Russian mobster psychopath that you're ever going to get on screen. And there's there's not very many directions to go with that, which is why mm-hmm. there's there's one scene that I'm sure I'll bring up later where he and Denzel are – let's say having dinner. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that sequence is actually his best moment because right. he gets to sit back and react uh to the equalizer instead of being this kind of force of nature that the script forces him to be.
0: Yeah, I like his scene. I like that scene, but I also like his introductory scene where he shows up and he tells them that he needs a ride and um <laughs>
1: that is enjoyable. Is it, is
0: it David Calhoun? Is that his name? The guy from Stranger Things who plays the cop in this movie? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And he's like, Yeah, I'm not a chauffeur. This is my town. And then (laughs) Teddy comes back with like this really calm speech, like, and just lets him know, like, I'm not here to ask questions. I'm not here to ask favors. You work for me now. Right. And I'm like, That, and I think that's, I think that was the best illustration of who he was as a character. And from that point forward, to bring it back to your earlier point, I, we knew everything we knew about him from that point forward. We didn't yeah. need to stare at his
1: tattoos to know who he was. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the script. So I was. This is actually the most surprising part that I was happy with because mm-hmm. you know you you hear what you hear about this, movie, and anytime you see like, oh, it's an action movie, it's a it's a movie about violence. You're always worried, like, okay, it's going to be stupid, it's going to be simple, it's it's going to be a lot of explosions. And there is one scene of him calmly walking away from an explosion, which is. Very stereotypical at this point, but I thought this was actually – like the characters were well-formed, which shocked me, and it was actually paced really, really well. Like the fact that we introduce him as working in a hardware store you know, in one of the first scenes of the film, and we don't actually get what we know we're going to (laughs) get until the last 20 minutes. Like there's even a scene where he has done something with one of the tools from the hardware store, but they don't show it. They show putting and, it back. Yeah, but all I they show is him wiping it, it off and putting it back and the poor person who buys that next. But yeah. you know, it's it's one of those moments that especially given who the director is, I was right. I was shocked that they didn't his show Shows are
0: often often overwritten. And South yes. Paul was overwritten. I even training there was a little bit overwritten.
1: Yeah, I totally and agree. I don't, I
0: don't feel like this one I don't feel like this one was a heart at, at least not to any ruinous degree. And I think I think even the sideways path that it took um, when he went to visit his old friend from the I'm presuming Black Ops CIA uh, Melissa Leo and Bill one of the Bills
1: Bill Pullman yeah Pullman. I think that's the only real lull in the movie yeah. and I don't know it it almost felt like um, there's so much action in this movie like we need you to take a break yeah. like it's things are exploding people are dying like let's just take ten minutes and then we could do a little bit of exposition about who he was and where right. he goes from here.
0: And I like that they do the exposition. And for a moment, you're like, oh, finally, he has to have a crisis. And he has to think about the moral aspect of this. And at the end of that exchange, they were like, uh, what did they say? They they, they made sure to clarify he was not having a moral crisis. They said um, he wasn't looking for permission. He was looking – no, he wasn't looking for forgiveness.
1: He, he was, was looking, looking for, for permission. permission. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The, the other thing I think the script does really well is like when, when the film kind of opens up and you see who uh, who our original villain is, like this guy, this pimp essentially, yeah. right? And he, he kind of fits the standard of, you know, every movie villain you can imagine, right? Like he really checks all those boxes. So I thought, oh, this is the guy. This is mm-hmm. the guy we're going to be – and especially in that first fight sequence, he just gets hit in the neck and he's not dead. Right Right. away, so it's like, oh, he's going to survive this, and he's going to come after Denzel, and he's got to take care of this. And I love the fact that there's this faint, like, 25 minutes into the movie, like, oh, actually, you haven't met the villain. Right. Like we're like a quarter of the way through this film and you don't even really know who the bad guy is. And I like, I like, like you mentioned, I think Teddy's introduction is fantastic and really tells you that this is someone you should fear. Not just a jerk, not just someone who abuses women, not all those kind of stereotypical things, but someone who even our main character should fear at some level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't. And that's the other great part of it is they tell you that he should, but they never show him. He never does. Yeah. He never does. And yeah, I think, um, I think in terms of writing, I also had – when I first watched, I almost gave up, like mentally gave up when they're sitting in the diner and he quotes Hemingway. And I'm like, gosh, this is such <laughs> generic writing for what I thought was going to be a serious action drama. Right. Uh, a non-hokey action drama. But then and on the whole of the movie, I went back and I loved the fact that they used the old man and the fish to let people know that what the movie was going to be. Yeah, the
1: I, old man's got to be the old man. The fish has got to be the fish. Yep. It's so a we- Weird thing to tell a prostitute, but <laughs> you know, But to him, she's a she's a singer. Yeah, that's she's right. Not that's a true. prostitute, like. Right. And I, you know, and we'll talk about this with the theme. But I love that he's. I mean, he really is the kind of face of self-efficacy. Always telling yeah. people, you know, you don't know quite what you can do yet, and if you just like believe in that and actually move toward it, you're going to do good things. Like even when he's first talking. Uh, to the the guy who will be the security guard, and he's he's trying to diet and get to that test. And even though he does something wrong, he says, you know, progress, not perfection.
0: Yep, I love you that. Know? Jumped right out at me. Yeah, like that's exactly what someone would say who who lives that lifestyle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I like that. It would have been easy to write this character as so rigid that like anyone who who doesn't toe his line is bad. Because Mm -hmm. he, like, does every, I mean, times himself getting up in the morning. Like, let me see how how efficiently and quickly I can get ready and get out the door. And then he comes into contact with these other people who could not be more different from that lifestyle. And yet he doesn't look at them negatively. He just looks at them as works in progress. Yeah, they haven't found it yet. Yeah, exactly. So
0: what does he say to her at some point? He says, um, she said, she points out to him, she goes, that's not how things work out in my world. And he says, well, change your world. Change
1: your world. I actually have that note right here. Change your world. Yeah. Yeah. He's
0: letting everybody know that it's all about – that you're in control of your own fate and destiny. It's his message and everything.
1: So what did you think of this as far as being like a very loose adaptation of the Equalizer TV series?
0: Um, I've never watched the Equalizer TV series, which is another reason I think this caught me off guard. I had no idea what that show was about. Right. Um, From what I've heard – as you – I guess you insinuated with your tone that there is a lot of um, – it's a very loose adaptation. It's very loose and they take a lot of liberties. Uh, I'm glad they did. I mean I, I don't <laughs> yeah. have anything attached to the last one, but I'm sure whatever this is is better than that.
1: Yeah, I mean it just – it's it's surprising to me that they even bothered calling it The Equalizer. Right. Like it, right. it's not like it's share. It's not like the Equalizer is something like, oh well, I got to see the adaptation of that. I mean, right. like <laughs> the the vast majority of moviegoers, like you and like me, had no idea what the Equalizer was before this movie came out. So why not just call it something else and have it be this Denzel Washington vehicle? It's a really strange yeah. decision. And, I, think, I think
0: it's not like the Equalizer selling tickets. It's not, it's exactly, not like the, the crowd that's waiting with their Equalizer TV post. finally for the chance. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think really the only big tie-in from what I've read anyway to the TV series is the very end of the film when he like puts out this advertisement to mm-hmm. like go help people, and that's kind of what the Equalizer TV show was about. So it right. just it just seemed very strange. And I know this this property like went through a lot of different directors and a lot of different stars. I think, I think I read Russell Crowe at one point was supposed to play the main role. So it's, it's one of those things that maybe uh, Fuqua just kind of took this idea and was like, well, I can make something fun out of this and I can make it kind of fit this equalizer script you have, but it does seem like a very odd decision. (laughs) So it's like, we complain and complain about how there's no original ideas, um and while we do his remakes and nostalgia and I guess technically this could be an example of that but that's definitely not why I liked it it wasn't like oh this really tapped into something that i remember this this seemed wholly kind of new in a lot of ways it did
0: it did it seemed like it's its own story built in its own universe um and and I often forget that it is a TV show. And when I rave about it all, online, people always ask what I thought of the TV show. And I'm like, I'm not fucking talking about the TV show right now. I'm talking about the movie. Why don't you guys watch it?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, rest assured that you got at least one person yeah. to watch this movie. It's, so. it's a tough sell. It like nobody
0: really believed me. Yeah. no, I don't know that anybody believed my enthusiasm for this movie, but I like the spirit of this movie as an action film.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when you on paper, it doesn't seem like something that, that is different, mm-hmm. right? It seems like it checks all those boxes of stereotypical right. action movies and it does check those boxes, but, but I think there's a little more to it than most.
0: I think there's a degree of self awareness. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the scene where he walked away from the explosion. I feel like it knows what it's doing right then mm. that it is saying, Hey, look, he's that guy, he's <laughs> right, he is that stereotype, and you still like him, right? Like you're going to follow this guy to the last battle. He literally blows up all the boats of the Russian mafia <laughs> from start to finish. I mean, I don't even know that I'd count this as a spoiler because, you know, from the beginning, he wipes out the entire mafia by himself. Yeah. From from top to bottom.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: And when's the last time that we saw a mainstream theater release take that kind of 1980s righteousness?
1: Yeah. And honestly, I kind of miss those action movies. And I wonder if I, as a viewer, could even see a movie like that. Uh, that that wasn't self aware. That was doing like an '80s action movie right. thing and take it seriously and enjoy it. Like to me, it's right. like this and John Wick, which I was kind of kind of struck by the similarities between this yeah. and John Wick. And I think they actually came out really yeah, close to one another, two
0: weeks of each other. Yeah, yeah
1: which is crazy because they're both about you know a guy who used to do something uh that applies to killing people, and then someone wrongs. Someone in their life just one step too far, and then they just go all out. You know, it's in a lot of ways, it's kind of, (laughs) kind of the same movie. Like I may be the only one who would love to see that crossover. I'd watch that. John Wick versus the Equalizer. That's yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'm big down for that.
0: I know John Wick because it's highly stylized and it was it was it was universe building. There was a self contained universe in John Wick, and it has a pretty big following. At least. Oh, it I would does. Call it bigger yeah. than a call following. People love John Wick. Yep. Yeah. So, so, I think Equalizer fell under a shadow, but at the same time, for slightly different reasons, they're both equally good to me. I don't, I think mm. the Equalizer is better, obviously. But yeah. I like John Wick too. So, as a scale for your listeners, if they like John Wick, then give the Equalizer a try. Just try it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's worth And if, if nothing else, I'd like to have the discussion about who would win in a hunt between those two.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I will say, I think, to me, John Wick is a better movie, and I think, especially, like, the only real negative John Wick has to me is, like, Keanu Reeves is a solid actor, but he's not great, and right. so I think Denzel could play John Wick, but I don't think Keanu Reeves could play the equalizer right. as well as Denzel does. So, Do you think
0: there's anybody—you mentioned Russell Crowe—do you think there's anybody who could have stepped into the role and done what— then Man,
1: it's so difficult because you have to have that balance of age, masculinity, like just pure masculinity mm-hmm. and connecting with people. And I'm right. trying to like, you know, like maybe in another 10 years, someone like Fassbender could play right. that role. Like I, I could see that, but it's, it's few and far between that someone could kind of inhabit those three things.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that it was supposed to be Russell Crowe, and I'm, I just don't think he's warm enough. I think he did some of the other stuff, right? But I don't – even in the nice guys, I don't think that Russell Crowe has the warmth. Yeah. To
1: B- yeah, and I like Russell Crowe, and I liked him especially in the nice guys. But yeah, I don't think he has that – that yeah. especially that warmth with so little language behind right. it. I think that's the most impressive thing about Dunzelier is that he, yeah. he does it efficiently.
0: He doesn't stop the screen to remind you that he's, that he's likable.
1: By the way, I'm a nice guy, just in case you forgot. Yeah, there's yeah. none of that. Yeah. Uh, so what did you think of the... Was there anything that stood out to you as far as production value in this movie?
0: No, uh, some, of the, um, some of the music cues were pretty standard Fuqua stuff. I know yeah. he, he shoehorns Eminem into every movie.
1: Well, you got to have Eminem in the end credits. Yeah. That's... Yeah.
0: So um, <laughs> I, liked, I liked the final, um, the final showdown that yeah. actually did take place. I think that's where production might have stood out a little bit. Yeah. They made the most of the poorly lit, of the underlit hardware store and mm-hmm. tools and music. Um, I don't know who the um, searing metal band was that kicked in <laughs> when he when he finally just went full um, home alone with it. But
1: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think that scene really stands out as good production value. I think the scene that doesn't is the scene we brought up already where he's walking away from the explosion. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much of that is like cueing into being self-aware and how much of that is they just didn't spend the money on that sequence right but it does stand out as feeling feeling green screened which i'm yeah. sure it probably was so you know there's that but it did feel like uh, i rolled my eyes a little bit like okay right. do we really need this moment and if you're just doing it to be self-aware sure I, I can see going that route but i probably i probably would have left that sequence out and just had right. it and or shortened it instead of having the actual like I'm gonna walk away from this explosion in slow motion without right. looking back. I was like, oh, okay, is that is that really necessary?
0: Yeah, I don't think that scene even latched into my brain the first few times I watched it. I what I like about this movie is, except for that final that final stretch of violence after violence after violence, I like that this movie wasn't about explosions, gunshots, and fights. It was about the promise of explosions, gunshots, and fights. It was the inevitability and right. not the occurrence. I like that they were always hinting that he was about to do something terrible. Yeah. And, he, and, it, and none, none of his attacks last very long, uh, if you think about it. It's, it's all instantaneous, and then more threat.
1: And he wishes they lasted less time. He's always yeah. annoyed with right. himself that it took 17 instead yeah. of 13 seconds.
0: I love when he dispatches of that whole room that not only is he keeping time of how long it takes, he's keeping, t- he's keeping a secondary time of how long he's not fighting. So he yep. subtracts that amount from the first amount to get the actual amount at the end. Yeah while he's killing seven people.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, speaking of production value, the f the, the fight choreography in general is very good here. Yeah. Um and I, I love the way that scene is set up, where he's kind of moving the things uh, things around on the desk so they're yeah, in the right place best. for him. And they have the the cool little kind of zoom in on his eye, and everything goes to slow motion. And I love that they kind of set that up as like, oh, this is this is how we cue you in that he's about to take action. Yeah, but that's then, a superhero moment. That's where right. I
0: think that they they're saying he's got superpowers. He's going to sh- he sees it all before it happens.
1: But what I love about what Fuqua does with that is there's a scene later in the hardware store where he's about to go into action, and then he has to stop. So you see you see the kids walking in the door. Mm-hmm. So he has yeah. to kind of halt all that. And I love that now Now what that does is it puts you on edge as a viewer because it you can't rely on, like, oh, when we have that zoom into the eye, everything's going to be okay because he's yep. going to dispatch everybody. Like, you know, context matters, and it all kind of changes as as you go through the movie.
0: Yeah, that's a good observation. Um, I because you do and he does. They, it's a it's a slow mo, blurred vision, um, hyper focus that they communicate. But they they disrupt it when the kids walk in because he, so he has to be able to turn it off. And I was a little bit. Not only do you can't he he doesn't return to it in that final sequence either. But there's never an instance where he has to because he's kind of hunting from the dark in that one, right? Yeah, so yeah. so he's surprise attacking there.
1: Uh, so I was going to jump into our favorite scene. So what was one of your favorite scenes of the movie?
0: Okay, so I already talked about um, I already talked about the scene where they meet in the stairwell. Why I love that, and that's yeah. probably my favorite scene. And I want to steal your favorite scene as my other favorite scene, which is the one where they sit at the table and they have their only extended conversation. So good. And it's almost the exact same thing when I talked about the first my first favorite scene on the stairwell. Uh, Teddy can never get a step above Robert by physicality because Robert's at the door. He's at the top of the steps. So Teddy can never get there. By the same token, when they meet in the in the restaurant, Teddy has the booth. So he's against the wall. Robert has the escape route. So the restaurants open at Robert's back. Teddy's go, Teddy's against the wall. And there's a lot of talking that goes on there. And probably 70% of the talking is Teddy, which is unexpected because Teddy isn't a man of words. Right. And Robert's the one there to get information. But Robert lets him talk, and the whole thing is framed as Robert ha- physically and figuratively, Robert holds control of the whole thing. So much so that Teddy tells a long – Robert tells the story of what he heard from one of his friends that presumably is Teddy's backstory, that he was adopted by a wealthy person and then murdered them and left because he didn't know how to feel loved. And then Teddy tells a slower ver- slower story about things and he asks, what do you see when you look at me? And gives, an an, gives, gives his own answer. That goes on for about 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then when Robert replies to that, Robert says, what do you see when you look at me? But then he just gets up and leaves, which is another power move to say, I don't give a shit what you, have, what you see in me. Right? I'm in control here. I don't need to have these talks. Yeah. And so, and, so, again, a nonviolent scene that's very tense and very exciting
1: to me. Yeah, and I think it's a great it's a great kind of preamble to the fight they're going to have. Yeah, you know, it's it's a little like if you're a fan of boxing, it's a little like the weigh in, the press conference. Like, let's just right. let's just talk at each other, and it's all a big power play, and it's all a big show. Uh, and I love you bring up the idea that he's like telling Teddy's story, and I love that right before he launches into the story, he says, "Stop me if you've heard this," and he yeah. doesn't say he's heard it or he hasn't. He just says, "No, continue." Like yeah. which which I love. So you don't get a solid answer there, and you have two these two people who are insanely intelligent and their job is to one up people and to know things. And you can see you can almost see like their brains working through this. Like I'm gonna let you talk. I'm gonna let you tell this story so hopefully I can get one up over you. But that's never gonna happen for Teddy because the equalizer like you said, he's not he's not scared of him, you know, even if he should be, he's not he's not really worried about his own safety. Right He's, he just knows like I have a job to do, and I'm gonna get it done, and I think that really comes through in that in that sequence where he probably does more talking than in the rest of the film combined. like right. he gets this giant monologue, which the first time I watched it seemed almost out of place. But as the movie ended, I love that scene all the more so do you have a
0: scene that you like that's different than that?
1: well i mean there's there's a couple moments there's a really quick moment of uh him I assume lying to his coworkers about the fact that he used to be a pip. He used to be yes. a Gladys to the pips was a really fun little moment of Denzel dancing and them trying to figure it out. But also just that final action sequence. And what I love, yeah. and it's a long sequence, it's got to be like 15 minutes of the film. Like it goes on for a good long time. I love that even as the audience, even as we see him setting up traps, like you said, going full home alone, I don't think we even realize what all of them do until they happen. Like right. I like that there's that mystery there where like, you know, he sets up the blowtorch. And I think as the audience, we kind of think like, oh, someone's going to get burned by that. And really, it's just pure distraction technique. Yep. And I I like that. I like because it's – there's a certain joy in seeing a trap getting set up and then seeing somebody walk into it. But – in this, like, we know who we're rooting for and we believe that he is going to do something that is going to work because we have no we have no other proof of anything else that has happened in this movie because pretty much everything he does works. Um, yeah. So I like that bit of surprise. And I also like the fact that he's essentially saved by our security guard. I like that that all comes to fruition at the end of the film. And I think that that sequence in the quote-unquote rain really works. Like there's yeah. a certain part of me that's kind of like, oh, really? We're going to have that a up in the rain? But that it is. does. And the nail gun thing works. And I like that unlike most other uh, most other action movies of this type, whether you want to go John Wick or talk about movies in the 80s, usually the fight with the big bad at the end is really extended and really difficult. But that's not what this is at all. No, like he no, just no. he just clinically takes him out. And I love that because it really fits the film and fits the character.
0: Yeah, that's probably the most stylized moment of the movie, too. Like, that's where, yeah, I would, because you have, you have the generic uh, water coming down them to look like rain. I think that's, is that where an Eminem song kicks
1: in? I could be wrong. No, the song is actually during the closing credits. Like it's Oh, right, is it? Yeah. Well,
0: there's a rap song that kicks in right then, right? When he walks around the corner, he, he's carrying his gun upright at first. Which is completely counterintuitive. How the equalizer would do it? He'd be ready to fire, right? But he's he's pose walking. um, It's slow motion, and it slows to show the the nails going into the body. And just a highly stylized killing. And it and none of it should work, but it does because it's the movie a, never asks. It's to be such more.
1: a Fuqua moment. Like it's yeah. like it's one of those things like you, I think, have a similar view of Antoine Fuqua as a director, um, that I do. But there are people who really love his movies, especially mm-hmm. when we talk about training day, and there's definitely some stylized moments in that, and certainly in Southpaw. So if you like that you're going to love yeah. this final <laughs> sequence. Like, I feel like I loved it despite itself. You know, I think yeah. I think if Denzel isn't such an incredible actor and such an imposing figure in this film, then it definitely doesn't work. But like you just you take him seriously because for the entire movie, he's proven himself that you should be taking him seriously. So you're just right. like, OK, I'm just going to let it ride because I'm, I'm with the equalizer right now
0: and i think there was something of a, a recognition of ambition between fuqua and washington um i think well tony scott would say this too they they always said that uh, denzel washington was tony scott's muse that he mm-hmm. did his best work with him and i think it's because denzel is able to see where you're going and help you get there i think part of what made south uh south paul fall apart so hard is that jake gyllenhaal was in an all-time classic uh was in an all-time classic boxing movie in south paul but no one told Fuqua he was making that movie. Yeah, like Jolene was giving the performance of a lifetime. Fuqua wasn't making the movie of a lifetime.
1: And it is a great performance, and I think yeah. that's what that's what makes that movie all the more galling. Is yeah. like this could have been so incredible. Like if if he had made the movie that Jake was making, like, yeah. <laughs> this would have been and fantastic. So you have
0: to wonder if Jake pushing that hard revealed the weakness of of Southpaw, whereas Denzel doesn't really push hard in this movie. He doesn't he goes where the movie's going and he, and he, and he walks in stride with
1: it. Yeah, and I mean that's I, why there's I think like I've mentioned a couple times like it's such an efficient performance. Like yeah. it's not showy, it's not over the top, and that's rare in an action movie. And I think we have talked about John Wick a bit too, and I think that's also another strength of that movie and it's for different reasons. I think it's because with Keanu Reeves you don't want to push him out of that comfort zone because he's right. very good in this in this particular type of role where he doesn't have to talk a lot, he doesn't have to emote a lot, he just has to kind of get the job done. But I think Denzel can do more and realize like if I do more, then this movie doesn't get taken seriously. So right. he really dialed it back in this movie.
0: Yeah. So I think I think it's I think that's a great compromise between the actor, an actor who's done that before
1: mm-hmm.
0: and a director who needs that to be done a little bit more often.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, so we talked about a little bit already, but let's, ta- let's talk about the scene, the theme of self-efficacy. So how do you feel like as you're watching this and have that theme in mind, how do you feel it applied? Well, I think that
0: once you've supplied the theme, I, I don't think that a scene passes in which that theme wasn't prominent within it. Even from the beginning, everything he does is, is a goal-oriented push to become the person who has done that. Um, He wants to be the one who finishes the the books his wife's couldn't. That's Mm. a goal that he that he puts upon himself to finish. He wants to be the one eventually he wants to be the one that helps that little that young lady um, realize her dreams by presenting her with that lifestyle. He gives it to Ralphie. He gives it in every single scene. He sets a goal. He goes he sets a goal at a makes the goal B and gets to it. That's how he murders. That's how he teaches. That's how he um, (laughs) operates as a special as a special enforcer. That's that's who he is as a person, I think. And I I think that's the underlying message of the film, really.
1: Yeah, and I think he's also I think he's putting that message to other people Mm -hmm. and attempting to get them to feel that amount of self-efficacy. He has what in psychological terms we would call like an internal locus of control. Like he doesn't no matter what the situation is, he doesn't feel like it masters him. He feels like he masters the situation. You know, and I think he tries to uh, pass that on to his security guard friend. Like there's that that scene of them dragging the tire and him essentially saying, like, you know, basically the only reason you can't do this is because you think you can't. And let's let's go. Let's let's continue. And the same thing with her as a singer. You know, he's he's constantly giving he's even giving her tips from the very beginning of the movie. Like you shouldn't eat refined sugar because that's hell on your vocal cords. And right. he knows that that is her dream. So he's attempting to give this to all these people in the movie. And he kind of, you know, like everything else in this movie, he succeeds with all of them. You know, he becomes a security guard. She's leaving town and is going to try to become a singer. Like, she's going to live out her dream because he's given her, like, the fuel to do that.
0: What do you think of – what do you make of the fact that inversely, um, just about every contest that he has, uh, anybody that he goes up against, that person loses – Largely because they weren't honest with their identity beforehand, which is kind of supportive of that too. When he meets Teddy, Teddy's lying. Hmm. Uh, when he meets the guy in the cafe who's pretending to be an electrician, right. he knows that person a isn't who he says he's being, and b has no confidence in who he is as a person. That's how that's how everybody loses to him too. In addition to how everybody wins with
1: him. Yeah, that's actually a really, really good point. Like we've talked about this line before, but he, you know, she, they're talking about the old man in the sea and she's talking about how useless like that was to catch the fish when, you know, nothing good came of it. And he, and he talks about like the old man's got to be the old man and the fish has got to be the fish. And if you're honest with yourself and about your abilities, then you can achieve great things and you can succeed. But if you're dishonest about who you are, it's not going to work for you. Right. Because because even if you there's really only like one moment in the film where he outright lies when he says he used to be a pip. Um, right. But I feel like that's more of a joke. But the rest of the film, like he's not going to give you the information, but he's not going to he's not going to try and deny things and come up with another story either. He's right. a very honest character. He just keeps everything close to the vest.
0: And everybody that he yeah, and everybody that he has to fight. Uh, you think of the two cops who are really just dirty people pretending to be cops for the authority. Mm-hmm. That he takes out the ones who set fire to the, um, to Ralphie's mom's restaurant. If you think of, uh, the sheriff from stranger things, um, he's, he's a guy pretending to be a cop, but he's got one foot in the mafia and the dialogue that it boils down to is be a good cop, be a good cop again. That's what it comes down to in the end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Be,
0: you know, do the right thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, no, I totally agree. So he actually weaponizes your theme against his own enemies. Yeah.
1: All right. Uh, so uh, before we finish up here, we have to talk about the movie we're tying this into, which is The Magnificent Seven, uh, directed by Fuqua. Like, whoever thought you would take a uh, a movie based on the screenplay of Akira Kurosawa and Antoine Fuqua would be directing. But here right. here we have it. Uh, and starring a number of people, but first and foremost being Denzel Washington, also Chris Pratt, Ethan, Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, Byung-Hun Lee. Like, this is Peter Sarsgaard. Like, this is a... This is quite the star-studded cast. So what are your expectations for The Magnificent Seven? Hopes or expectations? Uh, Let's do both. Let's start with your hopes. Okay. I
0: hope this works. (laughs) I want this to be because of everybody you named, because it is Akira Kurosawa, because it is a remake of a movie that I love, and because it is Denzel Washington, and because Chris Pratt is so likable, and Vincent D'Onofrio needs to be in more movies, Mm -hmm. and Ethan Hawke needs to be a badass every now and then. I want this movie to work so bad. I want this to be a good movie. My expectation is <laughs> there's too much there for Fuqua to deal with. And story and character and actor. He's never, he's never really done an ensemble cast before.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I feel like he's, he's much better with a small cast that has a very specific focus and mm-hmm. a very specific goal. This movie, like, I, I hope it's okay I don't yeah, even. I don't even yeah. have this like hope that it's good because I can't even ever. I, I, I don't even think that that's a possibility. <laughs> but my expectations are that this is going to be like just a just a trash fire. Like right. this could be really bad and could end up having. It's going to be sad because it could be another Jack Gyllenhaal moment where there's like two or three fantastic performances mm-hmm. in this just horrible, horrible film, and yep. I definitely worry about that. You know, it's. It's unfortunate because when I first heard like, oh, we're doing The Magnificent Seven, like, oh, that's – I love that movie. I own that movie um, and I think it can be done again. And then you – I first started hearing about the cast and I was like, oh, this is a really interesting cast. It's it's uh, ethnically diverse. It's a lot of actors I really like. Uh, and then I found out after that that Antoine Foucault is directing and I was deflated a bit. Who do we – um? do you know who the writer is on this? Uh, I can find out really quick. Let's see. This is – Because I they.
0: think – Fuqua does really bad work with Kurt Sutter sometimes.
1: But it felt like it said a different writer. So one of the writers is uh Nick Pizzolatto, who did yes. uh um, True, True Detective, Detective, right? So So that could work. It could work. Uh and Richard Wenk is the other screenwriter, um, who wrote The Equalizer and Jack Reacher. So So maybe. Maybe. At least Not you know lie, that- I like Jack Reacher too. Yeah, at least, you know, the action sequences will probably be fun to watch. Yeah. So I think it's going to be one of those movies that I don't think it's going to be a classic. I don't think it's going to be a best of the year. But even if it is bad, it could be like an enjoyable time in the theater, right. which at this point in 2016 is really all I'm looking for. Like <laughs> I've been really. Di- what?
0: I haven't found it in 2016. Yeah, like, yeah. No, there's no gleeful moment yet.
1: Yeah, exactly. We might have that. So there's still hope. Yeah. Uh, So one more time before we go, why don't you let people know uh, where they can find you uh, on your website and on Twitter?
0: Okay. Uh, My website is audienceseverywhere.net. One word, audiences everywhere. Uh, My Twitter for the site is We Talk Movies. I don't remember my personal handle. I changed it after I made the McChicken video. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think it's (laughs) A-E... Underscore David S.
1: I just looked and you're absolutely correct, so oh, good man, memory. But, well yeah, I had done. to take my last name out once I did that
0: with, them, with so the McDonald's sandwich.
1: The yeah, well, it's probably a good call. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Alright, uh, well thank you one more time for joining me. It was a good time. Thanks for coming hey, thanks on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. He said he's going. He said he's going back to fine. Going back to fine. Ooh, 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 what's left of his Thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Now, if you want to connect with the show or hear more shows, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study or you can go to followingfilms.com to hear other great movie podcasts like – War machine versus war horse, or the best and the worst of the best. But if you want to go the extra mile, go to Patreon.com/popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate on a per episode basis, and even get some really great rewards for those donations. And of course, the other way to get more of my reviews—I do written reviews now for the Film Faculty. That's thefilmfaculty.wordpress.com. So check out my written reviews there. And until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. That live without him in my world Hello? Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good, good, how are you? Good. Do I need my video on? No, you don't. Good,
0: because I'm anonymous online for a reason, David. <laughs> um way to not seem anxious, Jesus Christ. <laughs>
1: Ooh, ooh. I did even saw his
0: car